Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Well, thank you, Pastor Sandy, and good afternoon, everyone. It's uh, always a pleasure to come to Detroit. It's no uh, sacrifice at all, really. I have to maybe share with you the secret, and it's the, the incredible hospitality that we enjoy when we visit the Melegs. Uh, they are uh, the epitome of uh, hospitality, and they treat us extremely well. And uh, it's always a pleasure to come and fellowship with the congregation here. It's amazing as I travel to different congregations how the congregations themselves have different personalities. And I think God enjoys that. He enjoys the variety. And even when you read the letters to the different congregations, Paul writes different things to different congregations because they're all different. And I think it's great for us, especially as we're starting Burlington, to uh, see how the different congregations do things and get ideas and implement some of those ideas in Burlington. I'm hoping I get through the sermon today because I want to give a Bible study this afternoon, later this afternoon. Uh, The sermon is going to be different than what I usually do, and I have some visual to support I like to spend time digging down and drilling down in the scripture. Uh, Today I want to go across the whole Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, and give context. And as I say, I hope I get through this because I want to give the Bible study. But all this talk about preachers dropping dead immediately after speaking. (laughs) I'm just hoping I get through this. But uh, really, we truly should be prepared to drop dead at any moment. This is not the life that we are striving for. This is the training ground. This life is nothing. And I want to show that today by going from Genesis to Revelation. And what I'm hoping to do is give our lives context. Give our calling context. And context is powerful. I can say a simple sentence, it's hot. And and by changing the context, that sentence can mean different things. I could be talking about temperature. I could be talking about stolen goods. I could be talking about the hat that uh, (laughs) Herb wore today. So it's hot can mean different things depending on context. And, And the life that we live, we can view it differently depending on context. And so what I want to do is take a look at our call to leadership. That every single one of us that is called by God and placed in his body We are called to leadership. Unfortunately, the majority of the people that God has dealt with and his leaders, sadly, the majority have failed him. The majority of God's people have failed him. It is the minority who succeed. And so we have to set our minds and set our hearts to be in that minority who succeed, who are part of the solution. And so this call to leadership, I want to look at the Bible in terms of four big chapters. And those chapters are, first of all, the problem. The the book of Genesis opens up the first 11 chapters with the God of mankind. In the first 11 chapters of Genesis, he is the God of all mankind. And he makes a covenant through Noah, with all mankind. 
He will not flood the earth again. And then, beginning in chapter 12, the Bible takes this sharp turn, and he's no longer the God of all mankind. He becomes the God of Abraham and Abraham's children. And it's as if with this sharp turn, the rest of mankind gets thrown off the bus, and, and the bus just continues, focusing now on the children of Abraham. And many of the scholars are puzzled by this turn. But if we look at the structure of the Bible, we don't need to be puzzled over this. The first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis are really focused on the problem, the problem of mankind. And it takes a deep dive in the first 11 chapters of what is the problem with man. And this problem is so severe that God has to flood the earth and destroy all men. It's that bad. But he allows one man and his family to survive and starts over through that one man. So we get a fresh start. And again, this problem is so severe that it culminates in the Tower of Babel where there is this organized and collective defiance of God where all mankind agrees we will defy God together. And again, God has to intervene and prevent man from this severe problem. And so what the first 11 chapters of Genesis are showing us is that the problem with man is in his heart. That man has a heart condition. Maybe I should say a heart disease. And that we just need these 11 chapters. We don't need any more to show us what this problem is. And God himself states it very clearly in Genesis 6 and verse 5, where he says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. It was great. It was severe. And that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is the state of man. He has a heart disease. And this heart, it just it manufactures evil. Evil imaginations, are what, it's like a, a factory, and that's what it does. So we see very clearly then what the problem with mankind is. And then beginning in chapter 12, what God is showing us is the solution to this heart disease. So beginning in chapter 12 with this man Abraham, who just a man, but he did something remarkable. And what he did that was so remarkable was he believed God. God extended kindness to him. God extended generosity to him. And he, sim he was a, a man from an idolatrous family. His father was an idolater. He was an idolater. But God chose to work with him and bless him, and he believed God. And God was so moved by his belief that he accounted it to him for righteousness. And God then made a covenant with Abraham and chose that through this man, God would solve the world's problems. And so this formal agreement that he made, he said to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples, notice this now, all peoples on the earth 
will be blessed through you. And this is what the scholars miss when they, they say that the Bible, suddenly in verse uh, chapter 12 of Genesis, no longer cares about mankind. It only cares about this one man and his progeny. No. Through this man, the whole world will be blessed. And, and this is a formal agreement. We say this word covenant. We talk about the marriage covenant. It, it's, a, it's a contract, a formal agreement. And so God is making a formal agreement with Abraham to bless the whole world. From Abraham then, he made this promise that through his descendants, the world would be blessed. But Abraham was 75 years old when God start, started to work with him. And he had no children. So he thought the blessing might come through uh, a, a, a far relative that was a servant of his. But God said, no, it'll be from your loins. And then he thought, well, maybe it's through Hagar. Eventually he had Isaac, a child of promise. And the Bible doesn't really spend a lot of time talking about Isaac. He was uh, a symbol of Christ in that he was sacrificed, uh, figuratively sacrificed. Uh, Abraham gave him up. And he was brought back from the dead, so to speak. And so the, the Bible really focuses after Isaac on Israel. And Isaac had two sons, Esau and Jacob. And the blessing was Esau's by birthright. But Esau sold his blessing for a bowl of soup, a red bowl of soup was so hungry, so famished, he gave up the blessing for soup. And so his name became Edom, which means red. And it's interesting that in Hebrew, there are no vowels. So his name is really DM, like Adam. So Adam, Edom, is the same thing. So Esau really represents the rest of mankind. And then there's the covenant people who are represented by Israel. Israel, or Jacob, was not really a nice man. He was a trickster. He was devious. And he was self-reliant and wanted what he wanted. But God was blessing him because he was a covenant man. And over time, he learned to rely on God, to trust God. And he didn't have to fight for everything himself, that God would fight for him. So he built this relationship with God. And he had 12 sons. through four different women, which really was not his fault or his choice. He loved this woman called Rachel. And unfortunately, his uncle Laban tricked him. He sort of a uh, taste of his own medicine. He was a trickster. He got it back. Uh, and he ended up with another wife, uh, Leah. And then through their competition, he ended up with their handmaids and ended up now with 12 sons who were not nice people. I'll go so far as to say, on record, I'll say they were evil people, except for one, and that was Joseph. Joseph was a righteous man, and when he went out with his brothers, he came back with an evil report. Not that the report was evil, the brothers were evil, and he's just telling the father what he saw them do. So these were not nice people, and they hated this man, Joseph, because he was righteous. Hated him so much, they wanted to put him to death. And he escaped death, ended up in slavery. In the end, Judah was so repentant, he was willing to give up his own life 
if anything should happen to Benjamin, when they had to take Benjamin to Joseph to prove that they weren't lying. That impressed his father Jacob. And in chapter 49, when he pronounces blessings on the sons, the blessing that should have gone to the firstborn, which was Reuben, didn't go to him because Reuben defiled his couch. Then the next, Simeon and Levi, it didn't go to them either because they defiled his name in the land because of what happened to their sister Dinah. They became very violent men. So that blessing went from instead of the first, second, third to the fourth. And so the scepter was promised to Judah and the birthright blessing went to Joseph. In terms of leadership, this is really like the first jumping off point that I want to call your attention to. That God does not always do things in order. And that if we're going to participate in this calling with God, just because we're next in line doesn't mean we're next in God's line. And we have to be willing to accept it, that God does things out of order. And we cannot be jealous, we cannot be envious, we, not, we cannot be competitive. What we can be is submissive to God's will. That we're not after our ideas, we're after God's ideas. And so here's an example or some examples of various men that were out of order, that God used in a mighty way. And that's what we should be submissive to. Then comes Moses. this baby boy that grows up in Pharaoh's house as the prince of Egypt and enjoys all the wealth and the benefits of this very wealthy land. He grows up and discovers his identity and develops a real compassion for the people of Israel, his people, and a love for his God, Yahweh. So much so that when he sees an Israelite being beaten by an Egyptian, he steps in and intervenes, ends up killing the Egyptian, and thinks he got away with it. He buries him, thinks he's gotten away with it. But then later he sees two Israelites fighting. And he's wondering, why are you Israelites? Why are you fighting each other? And he intervenes. And they say to him, are you going to kill us too? And so he realizes he's been seen. So he has to flee. And in that process, God trains him takes all of his abilities and establishes him as the leader of Israel to take Israel out of slavery and, and, and enters now into another covenant with mankind. We call it the Mosaic Covenant or the uh, Covenant at Sinai where he now enters a covenant with the people of Israel and gives them his commandments. The people corrupt themselves. Moses repeatedly pleads with God to forgive them. And then we come to this tragic, tragic scripture in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, deutero, meaning second, and nomos, meaning law. It's the second reading of the law. And it's being read again because the people it's being read to were not there when the first law was read. The Israelites were so rebellious, God said, this whole generation needs to die off before I take you into the land of Israel. Moses himself, had to die before Israel could go into the promised land. He was denied access to the promised land. 
And he was denied access because the Israelites made him so angry. Their rebelliousness, it, he just lost his patience with them. And when God told, them to give, give, told him to give them water from the rock, he was so frustrated that he struck the rock in anger and water came to them. And in doing that, he misrepresented God. That the children of Israel were asking for things that were unreasonable, but to be in the middle of the desert and ask for water, it's totally reasonable. And God said, give them water to drink. And Moses misrepresented God by showing anger in giving them water. And so God said, you cannot enter the promised land. Here is a man that sacrificed himself so that God wouldn't wipe out Israel and start over. And yet because of them, he was so angry that he lost his opportunity to enter the promised land. And it says here, speaking to the children of Israel, you're about to cross the Jordan to enter and take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you. He's giving you the land. When you have taken it over and you're living there, be sure that you obey all the decrees and laws I am setting before you today. So he goes through the whole reading of the law with these children, these young people, so that when they go into the land, they will obey. Do they obey? Well, I think we know the story. So we start off with the problem. God then shows us the solution. That solution leads to bigger problems. Bigger problems. And we enter now the time of the judges and the kings. And the judges is a very interesting period in Israel's life. God is their king, and he has these judges reigning over them. And the judges really, it's better to think of them not so much as judges, but more as generals, military commanders. That when they go into the land, their job is to wipe out the inhabitants of the land and to establish the kingdom of Israel. They don't do this. Instead of wiping, and these, these people, let's make this clear. The heart of man is evil. And it's full of wicked imaginations. And this land of Canaan is full of wicked people. These are nasty, nasty people. They need to be wiped out. They need to be cleansed. They, they, uh, um, well, I won't go into These are horrible people. Their Baal worship, Ashtoreth worship, it's terrible. God says wipe them out. What does Israel do? They coexist with them. And what does that coexistence lead to? Instead of Israel leading the world, they begin to copy the practices of these people. And, and in coexisting with them, these pagan people then oppress Israel. And Israel cries out to God, and God raises these military commanders to wipe out the pagans and establish Israel. Othniel is really the only judge where nothing bad is said about him or said about the nation. This is where it starts. From here, it degrades all the way down. Even when Deborah becomes judge, she tells them, this is to your shame. A mother in Israel will become judge because there's no courageous men who will do the job. By the time we get to Samson, Samson is an absolute disaster. He is selfish, lustful. There's really nothing in him that, that you can say is admirable, except that 
he destroys the pagan people. And that's, what, that's the purpose of these generals, to provide relief. And so the pattern in the book of Judges is this ABCD pattern that keeps repeating and getting worse. A stands for apostasy. So the children of Israel are in the promised land, and they apostatize. They take on the Baal worship. B stands for battering. That as a result of apostatizing, the pagans then oppress them. The Canaanites oppress them, and they're beaten down. C stands for crying out. When they're beaten down, they cry out to God. And D stands for deliverance. God then raises up a judge to deliver them from the pagans, and then they apostatize again. And we go through this whole cycle. So by the end of the book of Judges, the covenant people of God are unrecognizable. If you were to look at their behavior, you would never know these are the people of God. In fact, it gets so bad, and I hope this will advance, it gets so bad that one of the tribes, the rest of the tribe, this tribe is so evil, we need to wipe them out. We need to annihilate this tribe. And they annihilate the tribe right down to 600 men. And then they realize they, they cannot cause the inheritance of this tribe to be completely wiped out. And so they allow from 600 men the tribe to continue to exist. But this tribe is, is worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's how bad it is in the time of Judges. When we come to the end of the chapter, we get this statement, which is both tragic and humorous at the same time. So it's tragic because everyone's doing what's right in his own eyes. Humorous because if you read ahead with the book of Kings, you realize that having a king is no solution. It says, you know, in those days there was no king in Israel. So it sounds like it's a leadership problem. But when we have kings in place, the nation actually gets worse. Depending on the king. Depending on the king. So we now enter the period of the kings, and Samuel is the kingmaker, prophet and a priest, and a judge, the final judge, and the people reject him. They say they don't want him ruling over them. They want a king like the rest of the nation. When we read the book of Deuteronomy, it's clear that God does have a plan to put a king in Israel. They are really jumping the gun, and they want their own king. And so God listens to them and asks Samuel to listen to them. And Samuel anoints Saul to be king over his people. What's interesting about Saul is he's chosen from the tribe of Benjamin. And we know from Genesis that the promise of the scepter is to Judah. So something is wrong here. But, they, but God chooses Saul because of the people pressing him for a king, and he chooses a man that's very handsome, tall, dark, and handsome. So much so that he, he, he stands over all of the rest of the children of Israel, which almost sounds like there's some um, genetic dilution that perhaps the tribe of Benjamin was mixing with the people of the land. But look at this scripture now to show Saul's character. 
This is really a question of leadership coming from Samuel. Israel is given the commandments. One of the commandments is you shall not kill. At the same time, they're told by God, go into the land and wipe out these people. So there seems to be this contradiction. You shall not kill, wipe out all the people. The commandment is, we shall not kill. But God kills. God sent the flood. God kills. And Israel is an instrument of God's righteousness. And through the command of God, they are to kill and to wipe out through holy war the enemies of God. And so a king cannot decide of himself to just go in and wipe out a nation. It must be blessed by the prophet of God, the priest of God. And so Samuel was late coming to give the blessing for the Israelites to fight the Philistines. And it says he tarried seven days according to the set time that Samuel had appointed. Speaking of Saul, he's waiting. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And the people were scattered from him. And Saul said, bring here a burnt offering to me. So Saul decides that he will do the offering. He is not a Levite. The, priest comes, the priestly line comes through Levi. And it came to pass, and, and he offered the burnt offering. And it came to pass that as soon as, as he had made an end of offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him, that he might salute him. And Samuel said, what have you done? Basically, he said, are you crazy? Do you think that as a king, you can just decide at your own accord that you'll just wipe, kill people? You cannot do that. It must be blessed by God, and that blessing must come from a priest. So you cannot just take to yourself that right to do that. So he says, what have you done? And Saul said, because I saw that the people were scattered from me. So people were getting impatient. They were starting to leave. He's worried, so he needs to pull them back. And that you did not come within the days appointed, so it's your fault. And that the Philistines gathered themselves together at Michmash. Therefore, I said, the Philistines will come down now upon me to Gilgal, and I have not made supplication unto the Lord. And this is something you'll notice in Saul's character. He spends a lot of time justifying himself. He spends a lot of time positioning, making himself look good. And he's very fearful of the people. Very fearful of the people. And I have not made supplication unto the Lord. I forced myself, therefore, and offered a burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now would the Lord have established your kingdom upon Israel forever. So we know that the kingly line must come through Judah. But he's saying he would have been established forever. So somehow the Judaic line would have been blended into Saul's line. But he blew it. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought him a man, and watch this, after his own heart. And this is really the issue. That God needs leaders who have a heart like him. And Saul, did, he had the looks, but he didn't have the heart. 
And the Lord has commanded this man to be captain over his people, because you have not kept that which the Lord has commanded you. So God was very clear. In Deuteronomy, he makes it very clear what kings can and cannot do. This man did not obey God. Look again at this passage here in 1 Samuel 15, where he's now instructed to wipe out the Amalekites, utterly destroy them. And Samuel says to him, Wherefore then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but did fly upon the spoil, and you have done evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. And I've gone the way which the Lord has sent me, and I brought Agag the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people, this is uh, King 101, throw the people under the bus. Right? Never blame yourself. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, and the chief of the things which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice unto the Lord God in Gilgal. So Samuel has some further words with him, and then he finally admits his flaw. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. So finally he acknowledges that he has sinned. He made the mistake. And I violated the Lord's command at your instructions. And he admits why. I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. This is why. This is what motivated Saul, approval of men. So I gave in to them. So let's, now that I've got that out of the way, let's get to the really important thing. I beg you to forgive my sin and come back with me in front of the people so that I may worship the Lord and everybody can see that everything's still okay. So you see his motivation here. He finally does acknowledge that he's sinned, but his motivation again is how he looks in front of the people. This is a very different heart from King David. And King David, very interesting, when he came to look at the battle that Israel was having with the Philistines, his oldest brother says this, When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? He's basically saying, you're nobody. You've got a little job looking after a few sheep. Why don't you stay looking after those sheep? I know how conceited you are. I know this. And how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. I find this scripture absolutely amazing. That God pronounces David a man after his own heart. And his older brother pronounces him a man with a wicked and conceited heart. How can this be? Somebody said jealousy. Yes, absolutely. So here's Eliab with his judgment of David. But now let's look at God's judgment of Eliab. So Samuel is looking to fulfill God's command to anoint the next king. And it came to pass when they were come that he looked on Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Do not look at his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. 
So this is really the issue around godly leadership. What's in our hearts? And it's not for us to judge each other. It's for God to evaluate. That when God looks at us, he should, the conclusion God should have is, there's a man, there's a woman, after my own heart. And in order to understand that heart, we really do have to look at King David. This is Israel's greatest king. And we see this heart when he faced Goliath. He came down to the battle. Eliab's saying, you just came to watch this. But he is fearful, like the rest of his brothers, like the rest of Israel. Saul is the tallest man in Israel and the natural contender to Goliath. And he's shaking as well. And this young boy David comes, and he has the courage to face this nine-foot giant. And where does that courage come from? From God. From his love for God. That he recognizes the covenant that God has with Israel. And he can't believe his ears when he hears this Philistine defying God. The God of Israel. And he knows he's a man of the covenant. And so his courage comes from understanding God's will. There is no way when God instructs us as Israel to cleanse the land and establish his kingdom, there is no way he's going to allow a Philistine, doesn't matter how tall, to defy him. And so his courage comes from his trust in God and his understanding of God's will. And so he, we know the story. He defeats Goliath and uh, cuts off his head and becomes a national hero. And this... Heroism, rather than rejoicing in God, Saul's reaction to it is here in 1 Samuel 18. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. He says, they have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. This is amazing. Saul knows God's will. God's will is to take the kingdom from him and to give it to David. And rather than submitting to, to, to God's will, he resists it. And he allows this jealousy and this bitterness to get the better. And I think, brethren, that if God's blessing is on our lives, we're going to face envy. We're going to face jealousy. God is going to bless us, and people are not going to like it. And if I could just share with you uh, my own story for a moment. I may have shared with you in a previous message that uh, I was homeless at one point when I was 17 years old. I quit school, and I was thrown out of my house, and I had nowhere to go. And so I slept in a stairwell and was on the street for a while. After a couple of years of that, I finally realized it wasn't a good idea. And I decided I would turn my life around. And I, I realized I had to go back to school. I had to finish high school. And then I went on to uh, university. When I went to university, my mom and dad were divorced. And my father said to me, why don't you live with me? That way you won't have any accommodation fees. I can look after your food. You can concentrate on your school. I thought it was a great idea. And I could get to know my father. I didn't grow up with so I moved in, and I had my head down studying, 
And at that time, I got uh, loans and grants from the government because I was uh, impoverished. And so they allowed me to go to school with these loans and grants. And it was quite a bit of money. And I showed my dad. And he said, you know what you should do with that money? Is invest it in furniture. So I'll give you this bedroom. But go out and buy a nice furniture set. And that way, you know, you can live in style. And when you move out, you've started to furnish your home. I said, okay, I'm a young man. I'm going to listen to my father. We went out and bought the most expensive bedroom suite you've ever seen. Set it up. I slept like a king for several weeks. Then I came home at midterm. I got my report card. I came home and I said, Dad, look at my report card. And he looked at it, straight A's. Straight A's. And some A pluses. I was serious. He looked at it. He looked at me. Looked at it again. And looked at me again. And he said, Am I to fail and watch you succeed? If I have a gun, I will kill you. I will shoot you. That, you know, at that time, I didn't know about mental illness and depression and all that, but he was going through something. And I realized I was in trouble, and I had no money. I was trapped. All my money was in the bedroom. But I remember my mom said to me, Adrian, whenever you have to choose between material possessions and peace of mind, always choose peace of mind. So I just left. I had a part-time job at the university, but I needed more money. So I started my own business. In starting my own business, I discovered that I love sales. And so I began a career in sales. And I've got to tell you, that was the blessing of God. I have worked for some of the best companies in, in the United States and Canada. I've, I've flown with billionaires, millionaires and billionaires who've, who've chauffeur-driven me, fly me in their private jets because they know how essential I am to their business. And that came from the curse of jealousy. So when God puts his hand on us to bless us, nobody can stop that. You know? And I'm looking forward to seeing my father again and, and, and showing him God's way. But you know, he did the best that he could do at the time. And God's blessing wasn't on him just as God's blessing was not on Saul. And Saul went insane. He spent 16 years hunting down King David. But they call him King David. He wasn't king yet. 16 years hunting him with 3,000 men. And it's like David was always just one step ahead. But as long as God is with you, that's all you need is one step ahead. So, King David had this friend, best friend, who was actually Saul's son. And look at this remarkable scripture. 1 Samuel 18, verse 1. It came to pass, when he had made an end of speaking to Saul, that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. This is remarkable. Jonathan is next in line for the kingdom. The wealth of this kingdom, this empire, is to go to Jonathan next. 
Jonathan recognizes that God is working with David, that the blessing is on David. And he gives everything to David and says, I fully support you because I know you'll be the next king and I'll reign right beside you. And unfortunately, Jonathan died, so that was not fulfilled. But we know it will be fulfilled. Just around the corner, David will be resurrected. So will Jonathan, and they will be kings over Israel. So Jonathan had, a, a, had that heart for God's will. And when he recognized God's will, he supported it, even if it looked like it was to his detriment. Very unusual for mankind. So next we come now, after David, to King Solomon. God loved Solomon. And Solomon asked for wisdom, and he had this incredible wisdom and he established the kingdom of Israel. So what happened in Solomon's reign, where there's peace in the land, was really a result of King David. King David obeyed God, and he wiped out the Canaanites, wiped out the pagans, and there was peace all around. But he couldn't build for God. So he put all the plans together, gave it to his son, and his son built this temple and established the kingdom of Israel. This kingdom was so powerful and so successful that the scripture says this in 1 Kings 10. The whole world sought an audience with Solomon. Why? To hear the wisdom that God had put in his heart. This is what the children of Israel should have established when they went into the promised land. It just took them 700 years of disobeying God until King David came and obeyed God and Solomon was now able to do the very thing that God had in mind. That, that the whole world would be blessed through the covenant that God made with Abraham. And the whole world would see this kingdom of priests and be blessed by them. Now unfortunately, Solomon's heart was not like David's heart. David's heart was fully devoted to God. Solomon's was not. So when the whole world came to seek an audience with him to hear the wisdom God put in his heart, he took that as an opportunity to make agreements with these different kingdoms and marry their daughters and expand his empire. And we see a hint of this heart condition in 1 Kings 6. He's following the instructions of his father David, building the temple for God. And in the 11th year, in the month of Bull, which is the 8th month, was the house finished throughout all the parts thereof and according to all of the fashion of it, so the plans that were given to him by King David, he did this. So he was seven years building this temple. It took seven years. This was a remarkable building, a remarkable project. But, uh-oh, whenever you see that word but, it's like an about face. We've got to change direction here. Something is going wrong. Solomon was building his own spectacular house for 13 years. Spent seven years building gods. Now let's take everything we learned there and let's, build, let's do one better and build my house. You can see there's a problem. And so finally when he grew old, all these wives that he used the power that God gave him and leveraged that power to marry all these foreign women, they turned his heart after other gods. And his heart had that same disease that we saw in the beginning of Genesis. 
it was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of his David, uh, David his father had been. After Solomon, his son Rehoboam took over, and the, chil- the children of Israel came to him begging for relief, that these projects that Solomon engaged in, uh, he attacks the people so heavily that they begged Rehoboam, please, give us relief. Rehoboam went to his advisors, the senior men, and they advised him, listen to the people. Then he went to his peers, the young men, and they said, tax them even more. Who do you think he listened to? He listened to the young people. And so that split the kingdom in two. So Jeroboam took the ten tribes of Israel north, and Rehoboam was left with Judah and Benjamin in the south. Thirty-three kings between and Judah. In the north, Jeroboam began and he took the children of Israel away from God's holy days because he didn't want them going to Jerusalem because he thought they might want to go back to Judah and he'd be out of a job. So he changed the religion of God. And every king after him followed suit. There's not a single king of Israel that said, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. Let's do what God says. Once they tasted power, They held on to it by any means. So 17 kings in Israel, all of them evil. In Judah, we had 16 kings. Eight were good, five were evil, and three, the Bible simply says, he reigned from this day to this day. Which, in the context of all of this evil, means they did nothing worth mentioning. So I have them grouped on the evil side. So 33 kings here, plus Solomon, plus David, plus Saul, and Saul's son Ishbosheth, who was king over Israel for a little while. So 33 plus 4, 37, and only 9 were righteous. 9 out of 37, about 20%. These are the leaders of God, and the majority, 80% of them, failed him. And not only failed God, failed the people of Israel. It's a disaster. Those that were righteous, well, here's Rehoboam. He did evil. Why? Because he didn't prepare his heart to seek the Lord. And this is really the question we're asking. Have we prepared our heart to seek the Lord? So that no matter what happens, our orientation is what is God's will. And these righteous kings, eight of them, look at their ages when they became kings. You don't have to be an adult to set your heart to obey God. At any age, as young as seven, these men said, I'm following God. What is God's way? What is God's will? Let's do that. In the midst of a rebellious nation. So we have the kings. We also have the prophets in the scripture. And the prophets really run alongside the kings. And they're warning the kings, they're encouraging the children of Israel, encouraging the people of Israel, and all of these men are successful for God. And what they all have in common, like Ezra the priest, he prepared his heart, look at this, to seek the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. And this is really what God is examining through this story. 
what is in our hearts? What is the decision? What's the orientation that we are taking? Unfortunately, despite all the warnings, here are the covenant people that should be established as a standard on the earth. And the whole earth should come to them and seek the law of the Lord. Instead, they're taken into captivity. The nation of Israel by Assyria. And even though Judah saw that, they still apostatized. And they were taken then by the Babylonians into captivity. So this is the kings and the judges, the covenant people, a complete disaster. Complete disaster. So these bigger problems are then solved by the ultimate solution. God then sends the ultimate solution for mankind. Jesus Christ. And this heart condition and all the evil that comes from it is satisfied by the atonement of Christ's blood. And what through Christ, not only does he atone for our sin, he changes our heart. And the scripture says in Jeremiah 31, and notice this, it's a new covenant. We have the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, not the Abrahamic covenant, that's everlasting. We have the Mosaic covenant, and now we have this new covenant. This shall be the covenant that I will make, notice this, with the house of Israel. This is a new covenant. It's not with mankind. The only part when God is the God of mankind is the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And he makes a covenant with Noah for mankind as the God of mankind. Beginning in chapter 12, there's no more God of mankind. There's the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Israel. And so now he's making a new covenant, not with mankind, with Israel. After those days, says the Lord, notice this, he's not going to do away with his law. He's going to take his law, and I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts. This is the new covenant. The Mosaic covenant was written on stone. This covenant will be written in the hearts of the children of Israel. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Not the whole world. I won't be the God of the whole world. I will be the God of Israel they will be my people. When Jesus Christ came, notice this, he did not come to the world. He says it here. He answered, I was sent only, exclusively, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus Christ is not interested in the whole world. He is sent exclusively to the lost sheep of Israel. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it's not fair to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. That's God's view of mankind outside of Israel. They are dogs. I'm here for Israel. This new covenant is with Israel. These sound like harsh words. But we know from that first covenant that through Abraham, the whole world would be blessed. So by being the God of Abraham, God is actually blessing the whole world. And we finally see now, after Christ's death, that the apostles and the brethren that were in Judea, dealing with the Jews, the people of Israel, they heard that the Gentiles 
had also received the word of God. So, so what is this? That the Gentiles are now receiving the word of God? The Gentiles are receiving the Holy Spirit? Is, is this another religion? Is this a new Christianity that we don't know about? And it comes down to the Apostle Paul. This, this uh, apostle that was called out of season. He was not a disciple of Christ. Called out of season, but yet trained directly by Christ. Through him, this part of the covenant would be fulfilled. All peoples on earth will be blessed through Abraham. So it is through the Apostle Paul that the Gentiles can come into this covenant, this new covenant that God made with Israel. And we can all become children of Abraham. Because God is not the God of mankind. Satan is the God of mankind. God is the God of Israel. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. And through this new covenant, and through the Apostle Paul, mankind is invited to participate in the one covenant God has with man. It's a formal agreement, and it's not with mankind. It's with Israel. Notice what Paul says in Galatians, writing to the Galatians, Even then, God had designs on me. Why, when I was still in my mother's womb, he chose and called me out of sheer generosity. This is just the nature of God, just out of his generosity. Now he has intervened and revealed his son to me so that I might joyfully tell, it says non-Jews here, it's really Gentiles, about him, non-Israelites. So God designed Paul's life so that he was trained by Gamaliel, one of the best priests in in Judea. So he really understood the law. He had Greek philosophy, the best schools in Greece, so he could deal with the Greeks, and he was a Roman citizen, so that he could travel the Roman Empire freely. And, And Paul is saying, this was by God's design and by his generosity, so that I can take this covenant and bring it to the Gentiles. And now all of mankind can come into this covenant relationship with God. Now let's look at today. Where are we today? As we wrap up. Philippians. Look at this curious scripture. Philippians. One of Paul's favorite congregations. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him. This is Paul. You think he's going to put together the dream team. And at this time in his ministry, he says, I don't have anybody else like Timothy that I can send to you who will show genuine concern for your welfare. Can you believe this? Paul has no one else that he can send to the Philippians who's like Timothy who will show genuine concern for your welfare. Why? For everyone looks out for their own interests not those of Jesus Christ. I find this dumbfounding. Here's the Apostle Paul, and as he looks at his co-workers, he's having difficulty seeing who he can send to Philippia. Because as he analyzes, at least in this state of their maturity, they're not mature enough. And and they're going to be concerned about what's in it for them. 
And Timothy is the only one, a young man, he's the only one that he knows. I will send Timothy, and Timothy's whole concern will be for the people of God. Timothy is like King David. And King David learned care and concern because he was a shepherd. And he learned to really care for the sheep that were under his purview. And, and when he became king, he was the same way. It shows uh, when he numbered the people. And he didn't need to be told that he sinned. After he did it, he realized himself that he had sinned. And he repented. But God still said, you, you're going to be punished, so choose. And the punishment he chose was the plague. And 30, I believe it was 30,000 Israelites lost their lives. And David pleaded with God, please, don't harm them. It's my fault. Harm me and harm my household. I'm willing to, you know, it's my fault. And that's the heart of a true king, to care for his people. And Timothy has this heart. But the rest of the workers at this time in Paul's ministry didn't have this. They more had the heart of Saul, where what's in it for me? Here in 1 Peter 2, in having this heart, we have to be And Peter says here to the people of God, the covenant people, one is approved if, mindful of God, we've set our mind on God's will. He endures pain while suffering unjustly. We have to suffer in this life. And sometimes we're going to suffer unjustly. What credit is it if when you do wrong and you're beaten for it, you take it patiently? But if when you do right and suffer for it, you take it patiently, you have God's approval. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. These words are easy to read, hard to practice. Very, very difficult. What this is saying is, you know you're right. And somebody has taken your right away from you. King David knew that he's the next king. And King Saul took that away from him. And he had to flee like a fugitive for 16 years. And when King Saul finally died, he committed suicide. And somebody came to him, I believe it was an, an Amalekite that was in Israel, came to him and said, I killed King Saul. David said, what? He said, yeah, your enemy, I, I killed him. And Satan, uh, David commanded to put him to death. Even though David suffered unjustly for 16 years, his, his life was horrible. You read the Psalms and how he suffered. And when he heard that this man disrespected the office of king, the, the, the throne of God, he put him to death. David was willing to suffer unjustly. And sometimes in the church of God, we're responsible for mixing the coffee. And somebody new comes along that maybe knows how to mix the coffee better than us. And somebody makes the decision that they can now mix the coffee. And we feel like, wait, what, what happened to me? I, I, I mix coffee. And we're going to fight over mixing coffee. This is the church of God. We are the covenant people. The whole world, there's what, 7 billion people on the planet today and maybe the same or more in the soil waiting to come up. 
waiting for us. We are the solution. We are the covenant people. And we're going to fight over mixing coffee? It's sad. But it's what's our heart? If our heart is set to do God's will, we'll suffer unjustly. Because God fights our battles. God will right all wrongs. God will show who's who. We don't have to fight. And so here's the example. And it's not just the example. It says, for to this you have been called. What? Did, am I reading this right? I thought Christianity was, you know, accept the Lord and everything goes well. I mean, if I had read the fine print, you know, accept the Lord and suffer like him. Okay, maybe this is what they meant when they say, have you counted the cost? I I got that at baptism counseling, but I didn't get this, that I'm actually called to suffer, and I just have to keep looking at how Christ suffered unjustly and be willing to suffer the same way. Colossians. If then you be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. God is doing something. He's doing something great. He has a plan for mankind through Abraham. That he is the God of Abraham. And that covenant that he made with Abraham is available to all mankind. But they must come through this covenant. They can't make up their own religion. They can't serve God, worship God any way they like. They have to become spiritual Israelites. And God has called us first to participate in this grand design. And every one of us is called to leadership. And the thing about leadership is, at least God's leadership, you need to be a great follower to be a great leader. Right? They say you need to learn how to cooperate before you can operate as a leader. So let's be humble. Let's not seek glory. Let's not try to impress each other with how great we are. Let's try to impress each other with how great God is, how merciful Christ is. And let's seek this. If we be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sits on the right hand of God. Here's the heart. Set your heart on things above not on things on the earth. These men, the 20% that have been successful serving God, they were successful because they prepared their heart first. Saul, Solomon, Rehoboam, these men were overwhelmed by the trappings of wealth, by the trappings of fame, admiration of the people. This seduced them and overwhelmed them. People that are successful to God, for, for God set their affection on his will. And even if it, that, that means like Jeremiah, we have to spend some time in the swamp. We'll do it for the glory of God. Why? Because we'll have a story to tell. We'll have a story to tell. We'll have a testimony that will move people, that will inspire people, that will strengthen brethren. So let's be patient, brethren. You know, as we go from congregation to congregation and get to know brethren... God's people are beautiful, but we are weak. The the spirit doesn't remove the heart disease. The heart disease is still with us. 
and, and sometimes the arteries start to clog up a bit, and, and the spiritual blood pressure starts to rise. Danger signal. What's that song we sang today, all holding hands, that I need you, you need me, we need each other, we need to bless each other, we need to forgive one another, we need to be affectionate with one another. We don't know, you don't know where I'm coming from, I don't know where you're coming from. You know, sometimes I act crazy, but maybe if you walked my path, you'd act crazy too. Maybe if I had all your blessings, I'd have my act together a bit more. God judges, and he judges righteously. We can't judge. Let's just help each other. This, this is a, a big, big calling with a big, big enemy who wants to get in our way. We can, we can help each other. We can bless each other. And I guarantee you, brethren, when this is all over, we're all going to kick ourselves and wonder why we didn't do more. We, we're gonna, you know, we could have done more. We could have pushed ourselves that much more. We could have encouraged each other that much more. Ephesians 4. Notice this. Speaking of Christ, from whom the whole body, the whole, not just this expression of, of Christ, the whole body is fitly joined together. Fitly, expertly. You know, the fact that you are in this congregation at this point in time is by design the design of an expert architect. It's not an accident. Fitly joined together and compacted. So we're not just put together. We're compacted, pressed down tightly. How? By that which every joint supplies. So when we were all holding hands, those were joints. Every interaction we have with each other is a joint. Our fellowship with God is a joint. Every joint has to supply something to the body that compacts it. Are you holding back? Are you holding back? Are you holding back? Am I holding back? Because we have the heart of Saul. We're thinking, what's in it for me? Or are we blessing others, edifying others with the heart of David? God's heart. How do we bless each other? How do we help each other? How do we edify each other? And have mercy on one another. After all of what Saul put David through, he still called him my Lord. And he honored him even after his death. And honored his descendants even after his death. Because he had the heart of God. We have to see past flesh and blood and forgive one another. From whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplies, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part. So every joint supplies something to the body according to the effectual working of the spirit in every part. So the spirit's working in you, it's working in me, and as we join, that effectual working in each other is a joint that supplies something to the body. And we're all about giving. We're all about edifying the body. And it makes increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. This is some profound language. This, this takes time. You, you can't read through this quickly. We've got to break it down. So the whole body is constantly increasing 
because every joint is supplied. We're loving one another and helping one another and forgiving one another. After this now, we come to Christ's return and the millennium. A thousand years of peace and abundance and the education of the rest of mankind that is alive at that time. Then the second resurrection and all mankind is brought into this covenant of Abraham and this new agreement where they have God's laws written in their heart. And then the earth is cleansed. And God himself, the Father, comes to earth. And we don't know what happens after that. But we know we have to be a part of this. This is big. Let's not get bogged down by here and now. You know, let's, not, let's not bog each other down. Let's not get into conflicts and, and a competition. And, and what, what, there was something in that song that we sang, I, I will not hurt you with words out of my mouth. We're going to talk about that this afternoon with Job and show how the words that come out of our mouth are one of the most powerful tools that the devil has. That that's how he works. And we won't, we, this is what we're after. And we want everybody here. And so we're going to work together and understand that the majority of God's people He's given them every blessing, and they failed. And so we go from the problem to the solution, which is the covenant God has with man, which only caused bigger problems. And so God has given us the ultimate solution. And we are Christ's body. We are the ultimate solution. And so let's do these three things. Like Abraham, let's believe God. If it's in his word, God said it, we believe it, we'll do it. Let's prepare our hearts. This, this, the, the, the story of the Bible shows that it is the story of the reformation of man's heart. The problem is man's heart. And the solution is man's heart. A heart that loves God, that wants that, that the laws of God are written in our heart. And let's develop our ability. God will use us powerfully according to our abilities. He, he gives gifts according to our abilities. So let's develop. The, what we do here matters. It matters. And God blesses us. And one of the greatest abilities we have to develop is the ability to suffer. Let's develop that ability. Because that's what made Christ Christ. That he could come here and even though it cost him his life and even though he suffered greatly, what was front and center for him was God's will. God's will. If we put our will first, if we care about our convenience, we will override God's will every time. But if we set our heart that we want God's will, no matter how much we suffer, we're holding on to God's will. Let's develop that ability to suffer. I don't know if you remember this device. <laughs> we had one of these. One that the whole family shared. And when it rang, I'll tell you, we were four kids. When it rang, everybody would shout, 
I'll get it. We didn't know who was calling. We didn't know who they were calling for. But we were hoping it was us. And it would be a race to this device. And we'd pick it up, we'd say hello, and then we'd be disappointed. It wasn't for us. And so we say, it's for you. And hand it over. The technology today is different. When it rings, you know who's calling, and you know they're calling for you. Seven billion people on the planet today, as many, if not more, in the graves waiting to rise up. God needs leaders. God needs you. He's calling you to leadership. The question is, Will you answer? This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.